So this morning, I want to talk to you about something that every single one of us does every single day. I won't say every single day of our life, but surely by the time we're three years old, we're able to do this. We do it every day without thinking about it. I don't think there's a day that goes by that we don't do it at least once, if not more than once. We teach it to our children before they even go to school. They learn how to do this. Now, obviously, since we teach it, I'm not talking about breathing. They wouldn't make it to the age of three without breathing. What am I talking about? I'm talking about counting. The simple act of counting. We do it without even thinking. If we're going to get one of something out of the refrigerator, we grab just one. It, it just happens automatically. It, we don't even think about it. There are so many things that we count. We count the number of our years, do we not? You ask any three-year-old, how old are they? And, and, and they'll put up three pudgy little fingers. They know this. We count our money. We count the number of days till our working days till our next vacation. When with that vacation arrives and we're finally on that vacation, we count the number of days left on the vacation till we have to go back to work. I know I had an Excel spreadsheet when I worked as an engineer, when I powered up my computer. That would launch automatically, open a file, insert my time that I arrived, and reduce the number of working days left until retirement. I was religiously counting that. You might almost think it was an idol. Maybe it was. I'll leave that to the Lord to judge. But we count all sorts of things, do we not? And so I want to talk to you today about counting, and you'll see how this comes out from the very first psalm. Well, I know what some of you are thinking, Paul, you know, you're stuck in a time loop. You did Psalm 1 last week. Yes, that's true. When I say the very first psalm, I don't mean Psalm 1. I mean the first psalm that was ever written. 400 years before David was born, Moses wrote the first psalm. And that's Psalm 90. We're going to look at only the first 12 verses because we're going to focus primarily on verse 12, and you'll see why. Verse 12 will be in, in red, and we'll all read that together. So you've sat for my words. Let's stand, if you're able to, as we read God's word together. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger. And by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and fly away. And we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? And according to the fear of you, your wrath. So, 
teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, how we thank you for your precious salvation and how we thank you of your precious word which teaches us all about your plan for your creature man and of your salvation. We thank you for what it teaches us about you, dear God. We would ask now that the true teacher of your word, your Holy Spirit, might be our instructor. That the words of David in one of his psalms might be true of us today. Would you be pleased, dear God, to open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your word. And we give you all the praise and glory for doing so. Amen. You may be seated. Right now, this morning, suppose you knew how many days you had left on this earth. Suppose somehow God conveyed what only he knows to you. Someone here, God might convey, you have five days left on this earth before I call you home to glory or before your soul is lost forever. Suppose someone else had 30 days, someone else three months or six months, someone two weeks. Suppose God told us the remaining number of our days here on this earth. If those numbers were lesser than what we think we have left on this earth, what would we change about the way that we think, about the way that we live? What would we change about our priorities in life? So suppose God told you, or you received a medical report, and the doctor says, I've got some very bad news to tell you. The test results are back, and it's just as I feared. You're infected with a rare virus that's attacking your liver and other organs in your body. And you have maybe two weeks left to live. Suppose God, in his sovereign wisdom, mercy, and love, allowed us to receive such a message from a doctor. And we had just two weeks to live at most. What would we do differently about our life? Would, be, would we be thinking about that promotion we're hoping to get next year at work? And we're going to work so hard for that? Or would we be thinking about that next truck we want to buy? Oh, my lease is almost up, and maybe I'll buy next time instead of leasing. What would we be thinking about? Would we be thinking about the bushes in our yard and, 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 and the flowers and how to make our yard look as beautiful as possible? I got to outdo my neighbor. What, 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 what is it we would think about? Would it be how much money we have in the bank? How I can invest it better to have a, a, a greater return uh, 5, 10, 20 years from now? No, we only have two weeks left. Instead of thinking about things, I'd like to suggest that all of us here would think about people, not things. We would focus on what is most important in life, and it's not things, it's people. We'd want to surround ourselves with loved ones, loved ones who are close to us, loved ones that we haven't seen in a while. Perhaps some of us would be thinking about that cousin, that aunt, that neighbor, that coworker, that child, that parent who never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
this could be my last chance to tell them before the Lord calls me home to glory. We'd be thinking about people, not things. Do you know, the truth of the matter is, every one of us here, including myself, our days are already numbered. God knows how many more days we have on this earth. It's just that you and I don't know what that number is. And so we want to talk about numbering our days today. The title of today's message, if you like titles, is Teach Us to Number Our Days, right from verse 12 of Psalm 90. If you take only one thing away from today's message, let it be this. Only by recognizing just who God is and the transience of our life, that it's temporary, it's short, it's like the flower of the grass in God's eyes. It, it sprouts up, and in the Middle East, by the end of the day, the heat of the sun beating down on it, it withers. Some grasses only last a day. Only by recognizing just who God is and the transience of our life will we seek God's wisdom. All this is going to come out in today's message. But this is just a summary of it, and if you take one thing away, let it be this. We're going to focus on verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. We're going to tear this verse apart. This entire message is going to focus on this verse. It's not going to ignore the first 11 verses, but this is going to be our focus today. So I know what some of you are thinking, one verse, this is going to be quick. Yes, it, it, this should not be a real long message, but it's not going to be as short as you might think. We're going to look at this verse under two main headings, the prompting to seek God's wisdom. What prompted Moses to even write these words in verse 12? Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. What prompted him to write that? And we're going to see that. And then we're going to go on and spend most of our time on the actual prayer. That prayer continues on beyond verse 12, but we're not going to look at those verses today. We're just going to look at the first line of that prayer. Teach us to number our days. So let's begin by looking at the prompting. What prompted Moses to seek God's wisdom in numbering our days. It begins with that little word, so. When you read the scriptures for yourself, pay attention to the little connecting words. This is really important in the epistles in the New Testament, the letters of Paul and John and Peter. and It's very important in the New Testament, but it's also important throughout scripture. This word, so is based upon the first 11 verses. What grows out of those first 11 verses? What prompted Moses to pray to God, teach us to number our days? That so connects that prayer with everything that went before. And the primary focus of what went before was God. You may have noticed that when we read those verses together. Man does come in there, but it's primarily focused on God. There are seven things that prompted teach us. So teach us. Six of them point to God. One of them has to do with man. We're going to look at each one of these just very quickly. Here's the first three. The fact that God was their refuge. Now, Moses lived 120 years. His life is neatly divided into three 40-year segments. 40 years in Pharaoh's house as Pharaoh's adopted son. 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep for his father-in-law. At the end of 80 years of life, he saw the burning bush. And the Lord God revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh, the self-existent one. And he sent Moses back together with his Older brother Aaron, 
to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. The Passover feast, the last of the ten plagues, the death of the firstborn, the parting of the Red Sea, Israel passes through, and then when Pharaoh and his army follows, the Lord closes the sea upon them, and they drown. Takes them about two years to get to the promised land. They send in spies. Two of the spies bring back a good report. Yahweh will fight for us. We will defeat the enemies in the land. The other ten spies say, no, there's giants in the land. We're not soldiers. You know, we've been slaves. They will kill us. And so the, the Jews accept. The children of Israel accept the bad report of the ten spies. And for 38 years more, they wander in circles in the wilderness. Throughout that time, while they were living in tents, tents that they would pitch every night and pull up every morning, here is the overriding truth that God was their dwelling place. The Lord was their dwelling place. Not those tents, not the land of Canaan, the promised land that their children would inherit. The true dwelling place for them was the Lord God. The dwelling place, that's their home. Now I'm going to give you a real fright. Imagine tomorrow evening, there's a knock on the door. You open the door, and I'm standing there at your house. And I say, I'm home. I mean, you'd be, you know, you'd be looking at me. What do you mean you're home? And I walk in, and I make myself home there. Your home is not my home. You know how you view your home. It, just to get home at the end of a long, hard day and to sit down and unwind, how comforting that is. But that's just a temporary home. We're all just passing through. The Lord God is our true home. We should feel as much at home with God and Christ in our life as we do in our physical dwelling with our blood relatives, our family, our wives, our children, our parents, whoever around us, whoever dwells in that same home or apartment with us. The Lord was their refuge, their dwelling place. Moses also points out that God is unchanging. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From eternity past to eternity future. God is always God. He can never be less than God. To be God, he must be perfect in every single capacity, in every single attribute and characteristic. Every aspect of his nature is perfect. Being perfect, it can never change. It can't become more perfect. Otherwise, it wasn't perfect to begin with. It can't become less perfect. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. He never changes. Theologians use the term immutable for that. It just means unchanging. I paid a lot of money in seminary to learn that word. You're getting it for free. It just means unchanging. God is our refuge. God is unchanging. You know, that's comforting. It's both comforting and for some it can be quite concerning. God will never change. His word will never change. His promises will never change. Whatever he's promised to perform, he will bring it to pass. There's comfort in that, that he hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't forgotten about me. He hasn't forgotten what his son did on the cross in bearing the sins of the world in his body, in paying that penalty. He'll never forget about that. That's comforting. That what he has promised, he will see it through to the end. But for some, it's going to be concerning. God is a holy God who has promised that he will judge sin. Jesus Christ spoke more of hell than he did of heaven in the Gospels. God is not going to relent and say, oh, you weren't so bad after all. 
No. God's standard is his holy perfection. Jesus Christ taught that. He said in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, therefore you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We already talked about how perfect God was. None of us meet that standard. So God sent his son to bear our, the sins of the world in his body on the cross. Man is transient. You turn man back into dust. We have finished our years like a shout. No, not like a shout. Like a sigh. Our strength is gone by the end of our years. As for the days of our life, soon it is gone. It's not from everlasting to everlasting our life on this earth. For those who know and love Jesus Christ, who have trusted in him and his salvation, there is eternal life together with God and Christ. Sandwiched between God is unchanging and as we'll see, God is everlasting, is man is transient. We need to remember that, that our life here on this earth is transient. What are 70 or 80 years as we read compared to eternity in glory with Jesus Christ? Why do we focus so much on 70 or 80 years instead of on eternity? God is eternal and timeless. A thousand years in your sight are like yesterday. God exists before time, if we can even phrase it that way. We have no better way than to say before time. Before there was time. Jude even mentions that, before all time. God is outside of time. He was before time. He exists outside of time. He doesn't need time, but he can act and exist within time. Time began when he created the universe, the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. Time came into being. And God now, while still existing outside of time, he acts and exists within time. But he himself is timeless because he sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. He doesn't forget about the beginning of time. Even a thousand years in his sight are like yesterday. This doesn't mean that, that for God, after a thousand years elapses for man, 24 hours elapses for God. That's not what it means. It just means God's perception of time is different than ours. We move and live through time, but God is timeless. He can act in time, but time is no Barrier, time is no boundary for him. God is our sovereign judge, Moses said. This is another reason why we need God to teach us to number our days. Because he is our sovereign judge. We have been consumed by your anger. When did Moses write this psalm? I said he lived 120 years, 40 years in Pharaoh's house, 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep, 40 years leading the children of Israel. He wrote this psalm during the last 40 years. How do we know that? When did the Lord God reveal his name Yahweh to Moses? After he was 80 years old in the burning bush. In verse 13 of this psalm, the very next verse after teach us to number our days, he uses the divine name Yahweh. He only knew that name after he was 80 years old. Moses wrote this psalm in the last 40 years of his life. This is important because now we understand Verse 7, verse 9, verse 11. It's the rebellious children of Israel in the wilderness, disbelieving God, not trusting in the promises of God. We have been consumed by your anger. He judged them from time to time. We heard about the sons of Korah and how their ancestors, the ground opened up when they rebelled against Moses. The God caused the ground to open up and judge them. We have been consumed by your anger, for all our days have declined in your fury. According to the fear of you, or in measure of our fear of God, is his wrath. Great fear, little wrath. Little fear of God, great wrath. And we'll talk about the fear of the Lord near the end of the message today. God is also all-knowing. We can't get away with anything with God. Boy, when I was a teenager, once I got my driver's license, did I get away with things when my parents weren't looking over my shoulder. 
But we can't get away with that with our Heavenly Father, with God in heaven. God is all-knowing. Our iniquities are before you. Our secret sins are in your presence. God is unknowable. Uh, the term the theologian would use is inscrutable. It doesn't mean we can't know that God exists. Paul said that, uh, that his, his uh, eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen, being understood through what God has made. We can know that God exists. We can also know his <clears throat> infinite power and his divine nature through creation. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky and, and the heavens show forth his handiwork. But God is unknowable in the sense that we can understand everything about God that we can understand even every part of his plan. God says his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We cannot plumb and fathom the depths of the mind of God. After all, how can the finite ever fully understand the infinite? In that sense... God is unknowable. Here specifically, he says, who understands the power of thy anger? Who understands how great God's power is when he's aroused in anger against sin? We should never take sin lightly. The scripture says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's not just going to pat us on our head if we reject Jesus Christ and the salvation found only in him. Who understands the power of thy anger, thine anger? It will be those at that last judgment, the great white throne judgment. They will at last understand the power, the fury of God's anger. All of these things are what prompted these seven points are what prompted Moses to write, so the implication of all of these is, I need to pray. I need to fall to my knees and pray to God and beseech God. And this is the beginning of the prayer that Moses records in Psalm 90. Let's look at the prayer seeking God's wisdom. We're going to look at it under these headings. The prayer will be requested we're going to see the prayer is necessary and that the prayer has a purpose. It's practical and it's focused on something. Let's examine each one of these in a little more detail. Moses says, so teach us, teach us. In view of these seven things that occurred in the first 11 verses, what is it that you and I would pray for? What would we be prompted to pray for? Moses was prompted to pray, teach us, teach us. Now, the particular form in Hebrew of the Hebrew text of this psalm, the particular form of that word teach is very interesting. It's, it's going to imply activity, but it's not just God teaching us. The form of this word combines God with us. We have a part in that teaching. We need to be teachable. We need to be willing to be taught by God. We need to make ourselves available to be taught by God. It's not just God force-feeding us. It's more, perhaps, if you've ever seen or at least seen a video of a mother bird feeding the baby birds in the nest. They don't know how to fly yet. You know, they've just hatched. They're only a few days old. And the mother comes back. And what do those baby birds do? They're sleeping, right? They're like, oh, no, no, no. You know, we're catching our Zs. Okay, no. Those baby birds are up. 
They're, they're each one fighting with the others. Their mouth are open. They want to be fed. That's exactly the idea here in the form of this word in Hebrew, teach. We need to be like those baby birds, our mouths open wide. Fill us, Lord God, with your wisdom, and God will teach. Moses prayed this because we have a need to be taught. There's a lot of things that come naturally to us as fallen children of Adam and Eve. Even though we're saved, even though we've been born again and we have a new nature in Christ, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. And we have the new man, according to Paul in Romans. Still, we have the flesh, and we're tempted through the flesh. And being taught by God, being available to God, doesn't always come naturally to us. We have this need. We have a need to, be, to, to know how to pray as well. In Luke 11, the disciples said to the Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. Moses prayed this, teach us, because we have a need, because it doesn't come naturally to us. It's something that we should be praying for. It's not just Moses, but David in Psalm 25 wrote this, What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. How do you know the Lord is going to answer your prayer to be taught by him to number your days, to, to bring into your heart wisdom? How do you know? David told us. It will happen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Anyone who fears the Lord, the Lord God shall teach in the way that he should choose. No ifs, ands, or buts. God will teach us when we want to be taught. Jesus Christ said the same thing. If any man will do God's will, he shall know of the teaching. God doesn't hold back his ways. God doesn't hold back his knowledge. God doesn't hold back an understanding of his word that's needed to help us to number our days, to help us to acquire God's wisdom. He doesn't hold it back. Jesus Christ said, he shall know. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord, but the things which he has revealed belong unto us and to our children forever. There are secret things that belong only to the Lord that we will not know. Some of them will know throughout the days of eternity God will reveal them. Other things, it'll take an eternity to ever know. The things that he has revealed, though, and he's revealed them in his word, those things are for us and for our children forever. For what purpose? Just to fill our minds with the word of God? Just to know what's in the word of God? No, that we may do all the words of the law. God reveals his truth, not just so we can fill our head with it, but so we can live in accordance with his truth. The prayer was not only requested by Moses, teach us, but it's necessary to number our days. This is important. Number in the Hebrew text that is behind this has the idea of being in a state or a condition where that is our go-to position to number our days, to view things, not merely from time, but to view things with an eye towards eternity. In a, uh, Solomon would write in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I, I believe verse 11, that God has set eternity in their hearts. Every one of us knows there's something more than just this life. This life so often doesn't make any sense at all. Tragedy comes in. 
whether it be in our own life or someone else we know or just someone we read about. Such a good person, such a nice person, and this happened to them. This makes no sense. How could this be? Life only really begins to make sense when we realize that death is not the end of it all. It's the beginning of a new phase of life. Jesus Christ said, I came that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. You know, we often think of the true believer in Christ who's trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ as having eternal life. And that's true, they do. But do you know something? The unsaved are going to live forever as well. They're not going to live forever with God and Christ in heaven. They will live forever in hell, the lake of fire. Jesus Christ said, I came that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. It's not the quantity of life that differs for the saved and unsaved. They both will exist eternally. It, 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 it's, it's not just the length of that life. It's forever. It's the quality of that life. The life of the true believer is an abundant life. The life of the unsaved that God will say, depart from me, you accursed, into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The quality of their life will be very different, but it is the same length of life. Numbering our days focuses not just on now. doesn't focus on the tiny little drop in the bucket of our existence. It focuses on the eternity, the great eternity. We live our life now always with an eye to eternity. And so this prayer is necessary because too often all we do is focus on the here and now, the needs of the moment instead of the eternal needs, the results of now instead of the eternal consequences of our decisions and our actions. It's not just Moses who says this. In, in Psalm 39, David writes, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? The numbering of our days, the extent of our days. Let me know how transient I am. David is echoing the same truth, one of the same truths Moses brought out. In Psalm 90, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. That's wisdom, discerning our future. Not in a crystal ball, not, not with psychic friends hotline or whatever they, they use now, not with the the uh, uh, daily astrology reading in the newspaper. That's not how we discern our future. The word of God reveals our future. And would we always discern that we are living for that and not merely for now? Jesus Christ himself told us what we should do with our life now he said, we must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no man can work. We need to serve God here and now. There's things we can do here and now that we will never be able to do again. There'll be no need for them in eternity. Some things will. We'll be praising the Lord throughout eternity. We'll be serving him. But, for example, in that day when Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom on the earth, in that day, no man will teach his brother and say, know the Lord, for all will know me from the greatest to the least. We won't have to teach anyone about God and Christ. We need to work now. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul puts it this way. Therefore, be careful how you live, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. We're engaged in spiritual warfare. Satan is the spirit of this age, the spirit of this world. He is 
directing the course of this world in a way that he wants to. He's blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ who's the image of God. He's taken men captive to do his will, according to the scriptures. Instead, Paul wants us, because of these evil days, to live our life not as unwise men in sin, but as wise, making the most of the time, redeeming, buying the time. See, we talked about stewardship uh, a few weeks ago. That was financial stewardship. This is stewardship too, but it's not financial stewardship. Stewardship has at least three main areas. And they're easy to remember because the way it's often phrased, all three words begin with the letter T. Stewardship of our talents, our abilities, our gifts. Stewardship of our talents. Stewardship of our treasure. We covered that. We don't need to talk about it. Here, what we're talking about is stewardship of our time of our time. For many people, stewardship, it's a lot easier to discharge that. Let me just give an offering, and then I'm done with God and Christ for the week. I can live my life the way I want. But there's stewardship of time. Our time is a stewardship entrusted to us by God. He has given us a certain number of days. How are we going to live those days? Make the most of them. Buy them up for God's glory. Making the most of our time. How do we spend our time? In our Lord's day, and before our Lord's day, and even in the centuries afterwards, life was a lot harder. In our Lord's day, people worked. Not just slaves, but businessmen, craftsmen. They worked six 12-hour days. Approximately, sun up to sundown, just about. They'd start right around sunup, and they'd stop a bit before sundown to return to their home. That, that was six 12-hour days. They didn't have a whole lot of free time. Can you imagine, when did they ever find time to watch the Red Sox? Okay? We have so much free time on our hands. How are we making the most of that time? We'll give an account to our Lord Jesus Christ for that. Are we making the most of it? Are we numbering our days, taking stock of them, living our days in light of eternity? The prayer that Moses prays has a purpose. That comes right from that little word, that. The word that, so that, in order that, most of the time what comes after this is the purpose for which something has just been said. What is the purpose for praying to God, teach us to number our days? The purpose is so that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. The prayer had a purpose. It wasn't vain, meaningless repetition like the Gentiles do. There was a goal in mind, a purpose for that prayer. And that prayer had a practical purpose. It was very practical. He said, teach us to number our days so so that we may apply our hearts. We may apply our hearts. You know, Moses uses the same form in Hebrew for apply as he did for teach. It's, it's two subjects doing that application. It's God applying, but we need to apply as well. We have a hand in that. Again, God's not going to force anything upon us. To tr He's not going to say, I'm sticking wisdom through Johnson's thick noggin if it's the last thing I do. I'm going to force it in there. No, I have a hand in that as well. I'd never acquire God's wisdom on my own apart from his spirit. Who knows the thoughts of a man, the scripture says, except the spirit of the man that is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. We, I would never know it without God's spirit. But there's again that working together, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. You know, I, I, uh, I was invited over uh, uh, Brother Browner's house yesterday uh, for a 
a barbecue. And they have a pool there, and some of the younger people were using the pool, and some of the younger people had children. And you know what they were doing? Because the sun was so bright yesterday, they were putting on sunscreen so that they didn't get burned. And they would go in the water. After a while, what would they need to do again? They'd have to apply it again because the water's going to wash some of it off. It's not a one-time application. Same thing for some of you if you like to hike or backpack. You use insect repellent, but you'll sweat if the weather's hot and you're really hiking at a good pace or carrying a heavy pack or going up an incline, and you'll sweat. After a while, you'll need to put that insect repellent on again. The form of the Hebrew word for, that's translated apply here is something that's ongoing. It's not just once and you're done with it. It needs to be reapplied and reapplied and reapplied just like sunscreen, just like insect repellent. It has a method that we may, instead of apply, I've translated the Hebrew here, bring into. That's very literal, bring into. This same word, apply is fine. There's nothing wrong with the way New American Standard and some of the other translations translate the Hebrew. But if I translate it very literally, it's going to be bring into in this context. It's used in Genesis 6. Noah brought into the ark the animals. The idea is to bring into, bring wisdom into our heart. Literally, the Hebrew says, bring into our hearts wisdom. I put wisdom there just because it reads a little better in our modern English. Bring wisdom into our hearts. But that is, that is the method to bring wisdom in. We have a hand in that with God. The prayer was focused. It was focused on wisdom. That was the end goal. Wisdom. It wasn't wealth. It wasn't health. It was wisdom. That is what Moses felt was most important. After all, they were wandering in the wilderness. They were not going to get to the promised land until every single person age 20 and older, who rejected the report of Joshua and Caleb that the Lord will give them victory until every single one of them died in the wilderness. And then Moses would be the last one to die, allowing the new generation age, uh, uh, below age 20 to enter the promised land. Some of them were born, but they weren't considered responsible for the older's decision. Some would be born in the wilderness. Their foolishness in rejecting the promise of God. You know, they prayed ten times. They complained ten times from leaving Egypt until the promised land. Ten times they complained. Oh, if only we had water. If only we had meat. They complained again and again every time God gave them exactly what they wanted. You know what their tenth complaint was? When the spies came back, they said, Oh, if only we had died in the wilderness. The Lord says, Sounds like a strange request to me, but be it unto you as you have asked. And they all died in the wilderness. The foolishness. Moses, the remedy for man's foolishness, for our foolishness at times, is wisdom. In Scripture, though, the wise man in Proverbs, the wise man in wisdom psalms is the one who's obedient to God, who obeys God's word. The foolish one is not someone who flunked out of school. The foolish one is the one who rebels against God and disobeys God. Here's where true wisdom is found. In Christ are hidden some, no, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There is no true wisdom and knowledge apart from Christ. Anything that science has that is true, that's wisdom from God and Christ. They are the ones who have allowed man to discern that truth 
operating in God's creation. True wisdom is found only in Jesus Christ. Paul writes, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. The wisdom of salvation, that we can never work our way to heaven. So if we're to acquire this wisdom that's found in the living word, Jesus Christ, and he's not here before us, where can we find that wisdom? In the written word. In the written word. But even more, we're going to see what this wisdom is. In Proverbs chapter 9, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. Now, you will hear some very popular Bible teachers, big names. They will tell you when you and you're a believer in Christ, you no longer fear judgment. God is now your father. You're his child. You don't need to fear God any longer. And so whenever you read fear of the Lord, just think of it as reverential awe. Have any of you ever heard that? Okay, I see some heads nodding. I, I heard that as a young Christian. Reverential awe. Now, the Christian should have reverential awe for God. We should, but not because of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is something totally different. It's a Hebrew expression. Every Jew knew what it meant, the fear of the Lord. And in fact, if you read Proverbs starting with chapter 1, by the time you get to chapter 9, verse 10, you already know what the fear of the Lord is. You know how, how you would know that? Because in the previous chapter, chapter 8, you're told what the fear of the Lord is. Here it is. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. What's the fear of the Lord? To hate evil. There's a flip side, though. If you hate evil, you do good. And we're going to see that brought out in the scriptures as well. You don't have to take my word for what the fear of the Lord is. Take Solomon's word. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Take the word of the biblical writers uh, for example, in the book of Job, the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that fears God and hates evil? That's said twice, those exact words in the book of Job. Fears God and hates evil. And later in Job, And unto man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. The most common feature in Hebrew poetry and wisdom literature is a parallelism. Two lines set parallel to each other. Sometimes the lines say the same thing with different words. Sometimes the lines say the opposite. And we're going to see some of those. But wisdom and understanding, we see those as the same. Both of these lines are going to say the same thing. Wisdom, understanding. The fear of the Lord is to depart from evil. It's the same thing. You fear the Lord, you depart from evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, Proverbs 8, 13. We have the same thing stated over and over again. Not reverential awe, departing from evil. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him. So man and him. Him shall he teach in the way that he should choose. The one that fears the Lord goes in the way that God would have him choose. In other words, he hates evil, but he loves righteousness. He lives in accordance with the way God has mandated man to live. Praise you the Lord. Blessed is the man that fears the Lord that delights greatly in his commandments. Again, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil on one side of the coin and to love his commandments and do his commandments on the other side of the coin. Blessed is everyone that fears the Lord, that walks in his ways. Whoever despises the word shall be destroyed, but, now here's the opposite, but he that fears the commandment shall be rewarded. He that walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but the one who doesn't walk in his uprightness is perverse in his ways, doesn't fear the Lord, but despises the Lord. A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages 
and is overconfident. He's going to get away with his sin. The Lord will never judge me. The Lord doesn't know. The Lord doesn't see. But as we saw, the Lord puts all our iniquities before him, our secret sins in the light of his presence. Who, who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, Messiah? Isaiah 50 has to do with the Messianic kingdom. The one who fears the Lord obeys Messiah, Jesus. So the fear of the Lord, when you read it in Scripture, doesn't matter whether you're an unbeliever who's confronted with the truth of Scripture or a believer, leave reverential awe out of the picture. We should have reverential awe, but not because of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil and to obey God's command. This is the starting point for becoming wise. You and I will never be truly wise in the biblical sense if we're not obeying God's command. Obey what we know now, and God will give us more wisdom. Let's quickly review. Take this away only by recognizing just who God is and the transience of life will we ever seek God's wisdom. We don't realize that this is not all there is, that there's a great eternity waiting for us. We're not going to look for God's wisdom. If we don't recognize just who God is, that he is the sovereign judge that every one of us will stand before, we won't seek God's wisdom. Let me give you some quick wisdom exercises. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs. Guess what? Many months have 31 days. Read a chapter of Proverbs every day. If there's only 30 days, either double up or just skip chapter uh, 31 for that month. From the chapters you read each week, write out one or more verses on a three-by-five note card. My wife has a stack. She's got two stacks because she's got too many written out, not just Proverbs but other scriptures. Re write out at least one verse every week. You've read seven chapters, just write out one verse. You want to write out seven verses, fine. You want to write out three verses from one chapter, because those were especially meaningful to you. You see a need for those in your life. You want to remember them, just write them out. And then each week, if you can, memorize at least one verse from those note cards. These are wisdom exercises. And then categorize Proverbs by creating a topical digest of God's wisdom. You need a three-ring binder, not a spiral binder, because you're going to be moving pages around and adding in pages. I did this with my children when they were 12. I recommend that you do it with your child at whatever age is appropriate. Do it with your grandchildren. You categorize Proverbs, uh, anger, uh, obedience, laziness, righteousness, violence, uh, lies, you know, good and po negative qualities. You know, you might just have a whole bunch of verses under anger, and when you come to violence, you just write under violence, see anger. You could do that. Nothing wrong with that. Or you can, you know, duplicate the verses there. Or in the back, just put together anger, violence, just the words, so you know that Oh, I'm dealing with anger. I should look with violence, you know, as well. And look up what God's wisdom is on both of those. So when my daughter was 18, she went away to college. And um, she uh, had a problem uh, there in the dorm after about three weeks. And her first thought was, I got to call dad and ask dad what I should do about this. And uh, then, then she thought, well, what would dad say? Oh, he'd quote something from Proverbs. So she went and she grabbed her topical digest of God's wisdom off her bookshelf in her dorm room, and she turned. I don't even know what the problem is to this day. She called me uh, the next week to tell me this story. And I said, well, do you need to talk about it? Nope. Why did she need dad's wisdom when she had God's wisdom, right? She read what God said she should do in that situation. This can be so valuable to your child's or grandchild's life. I urge you, I encourage you to do that 
If you need more uh, explanation of how to do it, uh, talk to me afterwards. You'll end up with about 80 categories to maybe 200 categories covering all different aspects of your life, finances even. And then let me just give you a parting challenge. For the next 31 days, I challenge you. For the next 31 days, begin each day by sincerely praying that God would teach you to number your days. Don't just say the words. Talk to God about it. Confess to God how much you need his wisdom. And then for the next 31 days, if you want, commit to this challenge. Read a chapter of Proverbs a day. If you see the value in it, just continue. And if you miss a day, don't stop. Say, okay, that's it. I'm not going to read any more this month. No, just pick up the next day. You miss the eighth day, then read the ninth chapter on day nine of the month. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the wisdom of your word. We pray that you would be pleased to teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts, that we may bring into our hearts, into the depths of our soul, your wisdom, that we may begin to think like you think, to think your thoughts after you. Dear God, we ask this not for our blessing and benefit, but for the honor and glory of your name. Amen.